this is going to sound really stupid, but I'm actually really nervous to talk about this episode. I'll talk more about why later. It's just, well, years and years ago, when I first really started doing this whole, you know, rumination thing on YouTube, uh, I mentioned, I've actually talked about this before, there's a few specific episodes, games, scenes, and moments in movies, shows, and games where I was just like, oh, I can't wait to talk about that. And I knew it would be coming some year. And indeed, I had these thoughts years ago, well before I actually got to the point of actually talking about them. I've, the one I've mentioned so far in specific uh, is the one over on Babylon 5, the episode Passing Through Gethsemane, which I'm probably, probably pronouncing incredibly wrong. This episode is another one of those moments. I've been wanting to talk about this episode for quite literally years. I'm pretty sure I actually referenced this back in Voyager. I'm not sure. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So this is an episode by Rene Echeverria. I've actually been mentioning him a few times as he started his career over on TNG, with the TNG stuff we're covering on Mondays. Now, obviously, he's you know a little bit more involved and came up with this whole story. It's some good stuff. There's some good uh, father-son dynamic, and it's basically a human story. I just want to take an aside and mention that one of the things I like best about this episode is that, with one very minor exception, there's really no threat of the week. I know that sounds like such a strange thing to praise, and you're right. It shouldn't be the kind of thing that gets praise in its own right. But I praise it because so often they insist on the threat of the week that it gets dull and boring. And in my opinion, plenty of otherwise good episodes have been ruined by the inclusion or the necessary inclusion of the threat of the week. Now, yes, I understand that creativity can be pushed by boundaries. I understand that better than most people. I've studied that. I've done lessons on that. I get that. But at the same time, I also believe that any time you have built in a requirement into your fiction that such and such has to happen, that that's the kind of thing that should be challenged, right? It's actually one of the biggest reasons why... I mean, there's some TNG episodes that you, you're not at yet, of course, but I've already covered from my perspective uh, in Season 3 and Season 4 of, well, here's this awesome, excellent, human interest, you know, personal story, and then there's the threat of the week, and let's get back to the really awesome story, and here's the threat of the week. To date, probably the most stark example that I can think of is actually a Voyager episode, the episode The Swarm. See, The Swarm is two plots that almost have nothing to do with each other. There's The Swarm plot, which is boring, dumb, and disinteresting. It is a stereotypical textbook example of a threat of the week that we've never heard of before and will never hear of again. And the B plot, or the A plot, depending on how you define it, I myself have switched on this definition from time to time, is all about the Doctor and him coping with the way he works and the way he functions and the way he wasn't designed to function and trying to find a way to preserve the doctor and keep him going forward and there were some consequences and bleed off and fall back as a result of that that was awesome and then there's the the, the threat of the week plot you know what i mean so i praise them because they didn't fall into that problem in this episode this is also the introduction of cassidy yates kind of she's mentioned in this episode this is the introduction of the goatee, although it hadn't finished it finalized, its finalized form yet. And he hadn't shaved yet. That wouldn't happen until season four. I'll talk about that when we get there. There's also the introduction of a woman named Chase Masterson onto the show. Now, this is interesting because Chase Masterson, as I've actually pointed out, actually uh, auditioned already to be the Dabo girl who was going to be uh, Jake's girlfriend. And I'm actually kind of glad, in fact, I'm very glad that she didn't get that role because, as we've established, DS9 had this weird thing against continuous characters or recurring guest stars. 
Now, this is funny, considering, you know, Lita herself is a recurring guest star. But the point remains, I'm glad that she didn't get that role so she could get this one instead. She only has a couple of lines and a very brief showing at the very beginning of the episode. But this is the beginning of her sliding her way into the show. And I, this is just my impression based on interviews and what people have said. But I think it's basically because Chase Masterson herself was, well, she was a very likable person. She got along well with the crew and the rest of the cast liked her, so they asked her to come back. And the writers kept writing her into stories until finally she started having her own story arcs. And then she ended up getting, you know, all the, all the stuff with her throughout the rest of the show probably was on the strength of the actress herself. And from everything I've heard, she's still a pretty cool person. In fact, one of the reasons why Lita and uh, Mir Lita have been such recurring characters over on Star Trek Online is because Chase Masterson is kind of awesome and gets along well with the developers of STO. Right? I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> you work... <laughs> Not only do you work with who you've got, but if you've got someone who is actually legitimately enthusiastic, interesting, and fun to work with, then of course you want to do more work with them. That's just sort of a duh, right? And this is probably one of the reasons why Lita and Mir Lita have been such major characters in STO for so much of it. But I'm getting off topic. So Lita comes in. I like her, by the way. Now, I want to mention something. Now, I know this is going to sound strange given how much of a prude I have a, a, a reputation for being, but I, once upon a time, I too was a teenager and found females attractive. Yes, very lovely female. I can't even do it. I was going to quote Picard there. Very lovely female. But I never was attracted to Lita in that sense, but I did find her interesting, and mostly because in almost all of her presentations, she was nice. Now, I know that sounds like a weird thing to point out, but what I mean by that is if I was to point to the biggest, most dominant trait she has, it's that she's a nice person. She's someone who legitimately likes helping others and taking care of others and has not quite an innocence so much as an idealism about her. And that appealed to me. I liked that. And so I was glad to see her recur as, as the show went on. So uh, <laughs> there's, this, there's this great bit where Bashir has... Uh, He's like, oh, yes, here, I've got this thing for you. Now, I, I don't believe I never noticed this. I can't believe I never noticed this before, but he pulls a pad and he types it twice. And then he holds it up to her, and it just says, go away. How did he manage that with two button presses? Does he have, like, a macro <laughs> just for this? Macros, go away. Uh, does this come up often for him? I don't know, just food for thought. We'll talk more about him later. I actually want to talk about him last, because first I want to talk about the Bajoran stuff and the sailing vessel stuff. Now, first of all, the sailing vessel was gorgeous. This is actually a design by Zimmerman. Of course it was. I mean, Zimmerman's just amazing in his own right and does some amazing work, and he does some good work with this episode. It looks beautiful. Now, they actually apparently sat down and worked out some more of the specifics of the nature of this thing, including, you know, the structure of it and how it should be designed, and they came to the conclusion that the actual design for this thing, if it was to be a real thing, uh, was going to be ludicrous and not really feasible for them to make, among other things. The fact that the sails were going to be literally miles long in order to be able to work in the way they needed to work. So they said fantasy and just made it happen. Now I point that out because they do that three times. First of all, in the design of the sails. Second of all, they don't explain in any way, shape, or form how this ancient, you know, Bajoran sailing vessel got out of orbit or began propulsing once it got out of the atmosphere of Bajor. The second thing, or I guess the third thing at this point that they never explain, is how this thing survives going to warp. I know that we all kind of accept that warp travel is a normal thing, 
But as has been said many, many times, especially in Star Trek, going to warp is actually quite easy. It is making sure that the ship and crew survive going into warp is the hard part. That's the inertial dampeners. That's, that's one of the most critical components in all of Star Trek's technolo technology, literally. FTL would not exist without inertial dampening within Star Trek. So how the hell did these people survive suddenly going to warp? Really? <laughs> I mean, it's a low warp, but even zipping up suddenly to light speed, for example, would be insane. They might not be putty on the back of the wall, but, you know, crushed bones, you know, that kind of a thing. And the ship itself would probably shred itself in the process. But, no, apparently it made it. I... Fantasy! Magic! If I had some confetti right now, I swear I'd, I'd spread it for you. And I just wanted to bring up these negative points right now, because... They're one of the. They're basically the only negative points I have in, the, in what is otherwise an excellent episode. It does bother me. I'm not going to lie. It, it, you know, when I saw them go into the warp lines, I'm like, "Well, they're dead." Like I remember seeing this for the first time and being like, "Well, they're dead." My mom sitting next to me was actually, you know, a gasp of of terror because he thought they were. She thought they were putty, and then they're just fine. Oh, okay. That's strange. That being said. The first thing I want to talk about is the fascinating paradox of technology. Because the more technologically advanced the infrastructure of your society is, the more you have the capacity to reject it. Now, I know that sounds like a strange thing, but what I mean by that is, we here in real life, modern day civilization, there are people who have the power with the amount of technology and, and understanding and craft that we have right now, to, that someone could decide to go out in the middle of nowhere, buy a plot of land, and build a house there. Now, you could say, well, they could do that back then, but it is a lot easier and a lot more available to do that now. And the type of house you can build and the, the construction of it and the specific pieces of it, you have a lot more options with regards to what you have there than you would have had back in, say, the 1800s, right? Now, this is especially true when it comes to fiction. Uh, as I've said many, many, many times before, when it comes to in the environmental technology of a, of a species in any fiction, there's like advanced enough to take advantage of the environment, advanced enough to destroy the environment, advanced enough to restore the environment, and then the final stage is advanced enough to control the environment. And if you pay attention to fiction across fiction, across all of fiction, kind of like, you know, it's my job, it's what I do, you'll notice that a lot of different organizations or planets or species or whatever across games and movies and books and television shows tend to sit somewhere on this scale. Arguably, we right now in real life are at the number two slot. You know, we are advanced enough to destroy our environment, but don't really have the ability to completely restore it yet. That's debatable, of course. We might be over in the third step. But we are definitely nowhere near the fourth step. By contrast, though, uh, Star Trek, at the level of tech they are with the t amount of terraforming, construction, lack, you know, the fact that they don't really have a lack of materials, thanks to replicators and whatnot, they are definitively at the fourth step. Now, the reason I bring this up is because this, once again, just like I said with regards to the house idea, gives them options. A member of the Federation has more options in how they choose to live than virtually anyone else across all of their history. Because they have the ability to choose the exact things they want. You know, I want to live in a house in the middle of nowhere in just a bunch of woods. But, you know, I'd kind of like to have a couple of force fields set up to keep the bugs out. And I'd kind of like to have a proper... Uh, industrial replicator, and just for emergencies, but also to help deal with the waste you know, disposal, and a, an emergency commune. They can decide that. That's not an option now, but at their level they can decide that. 
And I've always found that fascinating, that paradox fascinating, that you can choose to be less advanced when you are more advanced. And that's kind of what happens with Cisco here. He wants to go and he wants to actually get a saw and actually carve the wood and actually construct this thing over several weeks as the episode just kind of montages forward. And I like that because it makes perfect sense to me that someone would prefer that. They'd want to do it the old-fashioned way. And they have the option to because they have the modern conveniences of technology and resources in this case. For him, he doesn't have to worry. Excuse me, he doesn't have to worry about gathering enough money or, or getting interested funders or trying to re uh, procure the resources. None of those are concerns for him because of the level of tech advancement he's at. So he has the choice to go with the old wood, the choice to carve it himself, the choice to blah, 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 all that fun stuff, right? I like that, and I like the way this presents Cisco as being absolutely fascinated with the entire affair. It helps humanize Cisco, and it's the kind of thing that I appreciate personally and understand, as I mentioned earlier. And, to further my point, one last note, he mentions how he did actually install a gravity net, just because zero gravity makes him queasy. They didn't have a gravity net back then, probably hadn't even invented the thing. But he installs one because he can, because he's at the stage where he can pick and choose. So I like all that. I like all that a lot. Now, then there's this interesting scene where O'Brien and Kira start bickering a little bit. What's funny is they mentioned that it would be years to get to Cardassia, even if they actually travel normally. What's funny about that is that's not really inconsistent or a plot hole. We've actually established several times before, Cardassia and the Cardassian system and the Bajoran system are very close to each other in a stellar sense. Practically right next door, actually. Um, it's been compared sometime to be the same dis distance between us and Alpha Centauri, for example. So a year's trip to get there is actually feasible to some extent or another. Of course, they didn't know about the Yeti, but you get the point. What I find funny, though, is Kira basically defends it solely on the strength of, well, this was by Bajorans, so obviously it succeeded, you know. This is actually funny. Just today I was having a talk with a friend of mine about uh, supporting certain sports teams and how some people will just support their team because it's their team. They, they don't actually support it. They don't actually think in favor of it. They don't think they were right. But it's their team, so they got to support their team. I get the really strong impression that's what Kira was doing here. It's Bajoran. Of course it made it. <laughs> so they start doing this and working this down. I do have to comment on one thing really quick. O'Brien says, I don't get it. Why don't you just simulate it? That's probably one of the very small missteps I think the episode has. Because this is O'Brien. This is a guy who made ships in a bottle. It's already established who goes kayaking, already established, who later on, it will be established, likes to go and recreate old conflicts and war battles with Bashir. Why doesn't he understand the, the appeal of this? I mean, God's sakes, he is literally an improvisational engineer. He likes to build things with his bare hands. Anyways. <clears throat> so, Ducat calls up. Now, Ducat's introduction into this episode is actually kind of weird in its own right, but I do like it. I've gotten a lot of flack for my opinion that... Let me rewind this for a second. We know that there was a bit of a restructuring in the writing direction uh, towards the end of Deep Space Nine. Now, that's something we know. That is a fact. We don't know who was for what. We don't know exactly what the restructuring was. And we don't know exactly which parts of, of the, the changes to story and characters in late DS9 were part of that restructuring or were planned from the beginning. So I then append to that my speculation that Dukat's Altered, completely shifted and altered character arc was as a consequence of that restructuring. 
I say that because I've actually gotten flagged for that opinion, which is fine. We don't have to all think the same things. And as ever, I appreciate your guys' thoughts and opinions. But I mention that because I feel like Ducat's entrance here is a little bit of showcasing the man, not so much in a positive light, but more in a I'm-not-a-villain light. He, in many ways, comes across as mildly threatening, and yet at the same time, he isn't. He calls them up to say, maybe you shouldn't do this. And it's clear, based on the, the totality of the episode, that the reason he does this is he's afraid they'll succeed. And that will be, that will sting Cardassian pride. And he doesn't want that. And the end. Right? That's it. That's, that's the extent of his villainous plan. As opposed to, you know, all the other horrible things that he can and has and will do. And at the end, he actually eats his crow. And you could tell, Mark Alemo managed this perfectly well, that he is not happy about this because, you know, he's got that whole Cardassian superiority thing going, and he just said how impossible that is. But we have, you know, we have found this stuff. And you get the impression that the Cardassians, especially since at this point that the government was starting to do the shifts that would eventually lead to the problems with the Klingons. Uh, that's actually coming up pretty soon now, I think, actually. Anyways. Since the government's shifting, you could tell that they wanted to score a couple of brownie points, especially with uh, the Bajorans of the Federation. So it's like, oh, yeah, we f we found this wreck. Just now. Not hundreds of years ago, but just just a few minutes ago, we found this wreck. It's great. And we think you're here, so we wanted, we wanted to send out some ships and give you congratulations. And then they do a fireworks show. Now, what I like and, about that, first of all, I get the really strong impression, pure theory, that Ducat was specifically sent to do this in character. Obviously, out of character, it's because it's Ducat and Mark Alemo's a regular, so he's cheaper to get on than a new guest star. They even have his makeup already ready to go. Or the model, I should say, the mold. But anyways, I actually like to think that in character, the reason they sent Ducat, sent Ducat was because, remember, the new government's starting to take power, and they want to either do this as a way to shame Ducat and bring him to heel, or he accepted this, in fact, probably volunteered for it, because he himself is a bit of a political snake. He is definitely the kind of person who will shift in the direction of whoever happens to be in power. And Ducat is smart enough to recognize that the, the, the Detapa Council was really starting to rise to prominence, especially since the Obsidian Order basically just got killed. So, food for thought. So, they get on the ship, and unfortunately, I just have so little to say about the actual time spent on the ship. I say unfortunately because it's all just good. It's just really great character dynamic back and forth between son and father. It's all good stuff. Uh, a couple of specific thoughts. I like the solar wind sailing thing. They actually had real sailing equipment uh, on the on the uh, the set as they were designing this. They had a zero g bathroom. I like how they don't actually outright say it. they're just like, "How am I supposed to?" Uh, you'll get used to it. Um, the zero g rations. They mentioned that it's silent. Now, this is interesting for two reasons to me. First of all. Uh, the idea of being in total silence is actually kind of terrifying to me. Now, I'm a weirdo, <laughs> but I have to admit, uh, for example, I cannot sleep unless I have a specific type of white noise. In fact, specific types of white noise, if I'm being 100% honest. There's a reason I have a big old fan there, a big old fan there, and both of those are on when I go to sleep, even if it's, you know, cold. But 
The other thing I found interesting is it's actually not silent. Pay attention. Listen to the episode. There is a distinct hum in the background for the entirety of, of whenever they're on the ship. Now, it's not bad. It's not overt. And it is still clearly distinct from the hum you'd hear on Deep Space Nine or the hum on a ship or whatever else. But it's still there. But what I like more than that, as I, as I found myself paying attention for the hum, I started hearing something that was even more fascinating. The creaking. And they did a really good job on the sound design of the creaking of the ship as it kind of moves through space. I just wanted to give praise to the sound design for that. So, then there's another bit that I, I want to talk about because this hits a personal thing for me. And I actually have a feeling that a lot of you can sympathize with this as well. Jake finds out that he's gotten this offer of a fellowship at New Zealand, a writing fellowship. And he's trying to get into writing. And he has been writing something. And there's this great bit where Cisco's like, oh, so that's what you've been hiding every time I come in. As if Cisco didn't notice, right? But I bring this up because... Cyric uh, Lofton? Double-checking here. because I got Yes, Cyric Lofton does a really good job of exactly how someone asking someone they care about, whose opinion matters to them, to read one of their first works would act. How many of you have been creative in your life? Designing models, painting, drawing, writing, doing music, playing music, dancing, um, engineering work, um, architectural designs, graph, uh, uh, you know, graph maps for, uh, oh God, what's the proper term for that? I actually can't think of it. I was actually just talking to uh, my stepmother about this exact same topic. Uh, just just like three weeks ago, because she's really into that, you know, architectural stuff. Uh, there's so many things that we as human beings can be creative about. And I've, I've noticed a near universal trend that anyone who really cares, who gets into something creative, you know, in other words, it's something they seek out. It's not something they have to do for a particular, you know, thing at school or whatever, or they're being forced to by their parents. No, the people who specifically seek out wanting to do this type of creative thing, like speedrunning is for me, for example... They love it, and they love sharing it. And there's always that moment of, like, oh, God, I'm, I'm going to share this, and I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I don't want to, because I'm super nervous about what they're going to think, but, I mean, I really want to share this. Okay, hey, yeah, here's my, here's my speed run of Mega Man 2. What do you think? Oh, you, you don't have too much to say. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? I would bet money that almost every single person listening or viewing this right now knows what I'm talking about, to some extent or another. And Jake, Sir Lofton, does a great job of portraying that combination of nervousness and that desire for feedback and that absolute joy at getting to share it. The best part is when Cisco reads it, he says, it shows a lot of promise. Now, I have been in the business of analyzing things for a long time, um, and I have actually been asked, I've said before that I'm actually a better editor than I am a writer, probably because I have more experience with it. I have been asked to look at and edit many, many different works over the years. Nothing really professional, like two things that have actually been published. But, you know, people have come to me like that since I was in uh, fourth grade, I think, is when that really got started. And I bring that up, not to brag, but to instead mention that in my, my, my experience, which again, I, as I feel is somewhat extensive, people's first works usually are one of two types of things. They're garbage, or 
they show a lot of promise, which means they're bad, but you can see the nuggets of good in them, right? You can see how if they shore up some of their weak points, if they start to work on some, some aspects of writing better, that they will get better at it. And, and you can actually see that this is someone who has potential to be good at what they're trying to be good at, right? Shows a lot of potential. And I like how Jake, of course, is, is like, what? No. And it's like, of course, because I've been there too. How many of you have been there? Where it's like, hey, look at this thing I made. Oh, it's all right. Huh? I remember when I first started sharing my music. This would have been in the high school days at this point. And, you know, I started sharing it with, with you know, my mom and my dad. And they're just like, well, this is, this is interesting. And I'm like, interesting. Yeah. And it's just, boom, heart just sinks, right? So it's all very good and very human. And I like the way they portray all of it. I also like that Cisco is wanting to be supportive, but clearly isn't afraid to be honest. It's a, it's a nice balance point between honesty and supportiveness that I've noticed most people don't really know how to hit. You need to be able to tell someone their crap without being insulting or offensive about it. It's, it's, a, it's a nice thing, and I do think Cisco does a good job of this. Now, uh, let's see here. So then, you know, Jake's like, no, listen, I don't want to go to New Zealand because I don't want to leave you all alone. And Cisco's like, excuse me? I'm not alone. I've got friends. And Jake's like, well, yeah, but your last date was over a year ago. And Cisco, it, and he, does, he gets this expression of just disbelief, like, you're, you're worrying about my dating life. Come on, son. Quick side story. Once upon a time, Lormum, my mother, actually thought it was extremely adorable when I started getting invested in, in her dating life and ensuring that she would meet guys that she was interested in and would be good for her. She, she apparently said it was very cute. <laughs> I felt really embarrassed about that, but I just thought I'd share because I have a feeling that was what's going through Cisco's mind at this point as well. So then we get our mention of Cassidy Yates. She's a, she's a captain. Oh my god! And then the dilemma hits. Da-na-na-na. But then they fix it and it's fine. It's like it's almost a non-thing. It's the closest thing to a threat of the week that we have this episode. I already mentioned the Dakot stuff, so I don't actually say much. I'll have much else to say about that. Which brings us to the other half of the episode. Now, it's actually the shorter part of the episode in terms of runtime. I have no idea if I have more to say about it or less, because I feel like I've already been talking for a few few minutes at this point. But I do... This is what I've wanted to talk about for years. Before I even started the Deep Space Nine stuff, this is one of those scenes I was looking forward to talking about. Hear me out. So, Bashir talks with Dax, and you know he mentions this is the valedictorian. Now, this has been mentioned before. We've already brought her up before. We've already brought up the pre-ganglionic, post-ganglionic, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right? We've already talked about that. We've even had an entire episode kind of helping to d- discuss that and, and, and dispute the reality of it. But he mentions how he's always going to feel second best because, you know, she could have taken this assignment from him. Everyone else wanted the Lexington. That was the post they were gunning for. He wanted Deep Space Nine. He chose this post, and he's kind of given his reasons for it. And as I have established, I think he had other reasons for that as well. I find myself wondering, given what we find out in the future, I'm not going to spoil anything, if he really did feel second best, or if it was mostly just about nervousness about meeting someone from his past in general, and he decided to play up the second best thing as a mask for everyone else, because he obviously cares. It gets to the point where Dax, Odo, Quark, Morn and O'Brien are all fully cognizant of how nervous he is about meeting this person. If there's even this great scene where Oda comes in, oh, it looked better where it was before. 
the lexigan docked a minute ago she's in quarks and it's just yeah okay <laughs> you know a smokescreen kind of a thing but i do think bashir legitimately was nervous about meeting her i'm not sure why though now I, we know why it was intended in this episode but keeping all continuity in mind i'm not sure why the bashir that we eventually know about in in terms of retconning would be nervous about this situation any ideas any theories as ever, I love to entertain your guys' thoughts. Um, so then he goes up to finally talk to her, and she just passes by him like he's some other Starfleet officer she's never met before, which he is because she thought he was an Andorian. But I point that out because that's the worst damn feeling in the world, isn't it? Can I be honest with you for just a second? I'm going to get a little real for this section. Is that, is that cool? Hang on, hang on. It's okay. I've got my cool armor, okay? Plus five cool. Be cool. One of the worst things to me is being irrelevant. It is, of course, an irony that I am, in fact, irrelevant. Uh, don't mistake me. I love all you guys and all of you who make, a make the time out of your day to, to pop in here and either listen to the MP3 or watch the, uh, watch the rumination and make your comments. I really do appreciate you guys. But I am a tiny speck in a tiny speck of the Internet. I will never be big. I'll never be well-known. I will be irrelevant for pr pretty much the entirety of my life, at least until I take over the world. And even then, I'm not going to be the one actually doing it. Other people will be doing it, and I'll just, uh, you know, be the one. They'll take the credit for my actions, that kind of thing, because I'm smart. But in all seriousness, something about that just kind of hurts. Maybe it's a pride thing? I don't actually know. I've always felt that it would be better to be hated than to be irrelevant, to be someone that, you know, is like, ah, oh, I hate you, as opposed to someone who nobody even notices. To, to, to have the thing... Like having an event where you're supposed to go to and the people there didn't even notice you weren't there because you didn't matter. Your presence was not a positive or a negative. It wasn't even noticed, you know? And I feel like, more than anything, that kind of helps to explain, this is my theory, by the way, on why Bashir takes this so hard. Because I think most of his nervousness about this was all a smokescreen up till this moment. Up to this moment, he was just like, oh, God, oh, God, basically just to keep everyone off his tail, you know, his usual method of keeping his secret secret. But then he got up to go talk to her, and she completely ignored him. And that stung. Like, that was something he genuinely wasn't expecting. Because of the same reason that it hurts me, and probably hurts other people, too. The idea of being so inconsequential to someone you thought you mattered to, Right? This leads to what is, in my opinion, one of the best scenes in all of Star Trek history, and I say that without hyperbole. At 26 minutes and 33 seconds, we have O'Brien and Bashir getting drunk, actual drunk, they mentioned they should switch to Synthahol, and singing. This is a wonderfully human scene, a wonderfully real scene. It, it's not edgy, it's not darkier, or it's not gritty but it is incredibly human, while at the same time challenging what was usually considered Star Trek norms. It's mentioned by several of the writers and creators that they had to fight for this scene, that they had to push for that scene to be in, because people were like, nah, that's not really Star Trek. But that scene is so powerful and so awesome. The way that... It really helps to showcase the reality of the friendship that has developed between O'Brien and Bashir, and would continue to develop in the future. 
the idea, this is basically the same thing, and actually successful in a similar way, to Harry and Tom over in Voyager. It's just this scene was really powerful, whereas they only got like one episode to themselves, which was a good scene. Uh, the, uh, what's it called? It's the prison episode, where they both end up in that prison. The shoot. That was it, the shoot. They're getting drunk and they're talking, and O'Brien's like, Bah, oh, God, no, it's maybe she's in love with you. Uh, what? No. No, well, maybe maybe she hates you. And Bashir's like, is there something in the middle? Can't there be something in the middle? Well, you're not very much an in-the-middle kind of guy, Bashir. People either tend to hate you or love you. And then he's like, yeah, it's me, I used to hate you. I used to despise you. And then there's this wonderfully pseudo-awkward pause. Can I just give credit to both actors, by the way? Uh, Alexander Siddig, which I know he goes now by Siddig Al-Fadil. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's why I'm still saying Alexander Siddig. Um, and the guy who plays O'Brien both do a really excellent job in this episode. They really do. They absolutely nail this. And Bashir's sitting there and he's just, and now... And there's this wonderfully awkward pause because O'Brien can't bring himself to say what he basically already said. He's like, well, now I... I don't. And that moment is one of the best moments in friendship in Star Trek, in my opinion. It's at least in the top five. Because what then happens is he just admits that he doesn't hate Bashir. And Bashir's response is to take that as exactly as powerful as it's meant. There's just a sort of natural understanding of the bond between these two guys and the fact that you can't quite admit that you love another guy, right? But at the same time, you do. I mean, nowadays we would use terminology closer to saying, you're my brother or you're my bro or whatever. But he's, he's O'Brien clearly can't bring himself to say it. It's true, you know. I really do not hate you. <laughs> like, he can't say it. But the best part about it is Bashir doesn't take that as an insult. He doesn't get offended. It doesn't turn into comedy. Bashir understands perfectly. He understands what he's saying, and it means just as much as it should. And so Bashir's like, oh, that, that means a lot. That really means a lot, Chief. I get the impression that O'Brien is Bashir's first friend. Anyone else get that impression? I mean, he's young, so it's not super surprising. But I get the really strong impression that O'Brien was the first person Bashir has ever been with in his life that he really felt comfortable with and connected with enough to call a real friend. Not just an acquaintance, not just a professional work, you know, co-worker, but someone who really bonded with him. And I think that there is an inherent value in the way the two care about each other and the way the two interact with each other and the way that there is a natural understanding that even as they try to say it, they stumble over it, but they don't have to because it still means just as much to both of them. O'Brien's got his back, and Bashir appreciates every moment of that. I know that's a strange thing to comment on, especially now, 2019, and, and gender politics being all over the place, but I really enjoy watching two guys barely stumbling over telling each other how much they care about each other and meaning it all the same. It's a really heartwarming scene. So that was the scene I really wanted to talk about. I don't actually have so much else to say about the episode in general. There's a scene where, you know, oh my god, I thought you were Andorian. And uh, she talks with him and he talks with her. and It has been argued, although never proven, 
that this is a discussion of TNG versus Deep Space Nine. Ah, oh, you know, I only have time to collect samples, then I'm on to the next thing, and we have to constantly keep on the move. You, you get to sit here and, and analyze this Bajoran sample thing for forever. What did happen with this thing, and blah, 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 blah. And, of course, the episode is slanted to make DS9 seem the superior of those, because, of course, it is. This is Deep Space Nine where it's showing that. Excuse me, I do think there's room for both types of storytelling, in my opinion. And I think it's nice to compare and contrast the two. Because that is the point, isn't it? You really are in a better position to tell, let's call it what it is, serialized storytelling when it comes to something like Deep Space Nine, something that is stationary. And when you're moving continuously, well, it's a better way to do the kind of you know, step-by-step storytelling. I still think they could have used more continuity in Voyager, but that's not the point. We could pretty much universally blame Rick Berman for that, but that's not the point. Either way, I really, really like this episode. This was a treat to sit through. Thank you all for joining me. I'll see you next time.